Okay, good evening everybody and thank you for coming for the public lecture. The public lecture this evening is entitled Visualizing Political Struggle in the Middle East. Um, I introduce myself first. My name is Atimad Mohanna. I'm from uh, Al Asi Middle East Center, pursuing my postdoctoral research on gender, religion, and sustainable development in Gaza. I'm from Gaza. Um, um, our speaker today is very distinctive. She's Lina Khatib. Lina Khatib is the co-founding head of the program on Arab reform and democracy at Stanford University Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. It's a multidisciplinary policy-oriented research program established in 2010 to study uh, democratic change in the Arab world. She's an expert on Middle East politics and its intersection with social, cultural, and media issues. At Stanford, um, Lena uh, leads research projects on political and economic reform, as well as on political activism in the Arab world and the political participation of minorities. She is the author of many books, or number of books, uh, filming the modern Middle East politics in the cinemas of Hollywood, uh, Hollywood and the Arab world, uh, published in 2006, and uh, Lebanese uh, cinemas imagining the civil war and beyond, published in 2008. And she is the uh, founding co-editor of the Middle East Journal of Culture and Communication. Her book, which is the subject of her presentation today, image politics in the Middle East, the role of the visual uh, and, and political uh, struggle published by IP uh, Tourists uh, 2012, examines the visual dimension of power struggles between states, political leaders, political parties, and citizens in Egypt, um, Syria, Libya, Iran, and Lebanon. Uh, Lina is also a consultant and frequent commentator on the Middle East uh, in the media with frequent appearances on CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, and several media outlets uh, around uh, the globe. We all welcome uh, Lina. And before uh, Lina starts, I would like to remind you that this public event is uh, and Twitter, um, it's hash uh, LSE uh, image. And I also want to mention that this public uh, lecture is being recorded and it, it will be available on online, I think, maximum in two days. Um, Lina is going to speak for 45 minutes and then we'll have 45 minutes for questions uh, and uh, answers. Uh, so I'll leave the floor for Lina. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Atimad, and uh, thank you all for coming tonight, and uh, thanks to the LSE for inviting me to talk about my newest book. Um, I'm going to start kind of fairly swiftly by saying that my argument in this lecture is that the image has claimed a central role in political processes in the Middle East. So states, 
non-state actors, oppositional groups, and ordinary people are all engaging in political struggle through the image. And so political struggle is a struggle over presence and over visibility. For authoritarian states, political power means having control over visual production and consumption. For political oppositions, democratic representation merges with visual representation. For people, possessing political agency means possessing the ability to be seen, not only heard. So what kinds of images are we talking about? Processes of political struggle contain many visual forms. Mass media images, digital images, cartoons, art, physical spaces or objects, ephemeral images, whether on paper, a wall, or another physical medium, and human embodiment. Images can also be conceptual, a visual idea. All those forms merge and interact so that it is no longer possible to look at an image in any one form in isolation from the others. A crucial point in my book that I'm talking about today is that analyzing the role of images in political processes can no longer be done on the basis of genre alone. So looking just at visual art or television images or online images. To really understand the role of the visual in the political um, struggle processes in the Middle East, one has to examine all those forms of visual expression simultaneously and pay attention to how they reproduce, reference, and influence and interact with one another. Now, the visual is not new as a component of political struggle in the Middle East, but its rise has accelerated since the attacks of September 11 so that key political moments in the last decade are mainly remembered as images and images of images. The Twin Towers collapsing, Osama bin Laden's video messages, the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, the mobile phone video of Imad al-Kabir being tortured by the police in Egypt, the Green Movement in Iran, and of course, the extraordinary visual rush that was the Arab Spring. The Middle East has become a site of struggle over the construction of social and political reality through competing images. And in this competition, one political actor's carefully self-constructed image can be erased by a new oppositional image. So the lasting image of the United States war on Iraq is not the televised stage image of the toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad, but the photographs of tortured prisoners in Abu Ghraib. The lasting image of Saddam Hussein is not that of the public monuments in Iraq which embedded his likeness, his fists in this particular case, but the mobile phone video of his hanging. The lasting image of Israel's separation wall is not the wall itself, but Banksy's graffiti challenging the physical supremacy of the wall with symbolism. The lasting image of the Hosni Mubarak era is not that of Barack Obama giving a historic speech in Cairo in 2009, but of government thugs attacking peaceful protesters in Tahrir Square on camel and horseback. 
So my argument is that to understand political dynamics in the Middle East, one needs to take into account the role of the image in those dynamics. And to understand image dynamics in the Middle East, one needs to examine all visual mediums and practices simultaneously. So in this, I do not separate hard politics from soft politics. And I do not separate the cultural from the political. It's not just that the cultural and the political spheres feed off each other. Very often, popular culture is politics, and the image-making act can itself be a political act. Now, perhaps the first communication channel that comes to mind when thinking about image politics in the Middle East is the media, particularly after the Arab Spring. Of course, the media played an important role, but my interest is primarily in how the Arab Spring actually went beyond media representations themselves to assert a central role for the physicality of people and places. What I'm saying is that during the Arab Spring, the media were also the individuals. Each person on the street in Tahrir Square was an image creator and broadcaster of political messages. And this broadcasting of, of messages, whether verbal or visual or both, did often occur using third-party communication tools, like the internet or mobile phones or the carrying of placards. But it also can, um, occurred through performance by the body, through visible presence, through being in a space. And here we can see a change in the way political communication dynamics are conceived. The process of political communication today has moved beyond the media. So television and radio broadcasts, etc., are now supplemented by internet campaigns, stage actions in public space, the wearing of symbolic attire, the production and consumption of merchandise, posters, and other symbolic objects. So political communication dynamics must take into account the role of the citizen as an individual and as an agent in all those visual processes. States have also embraced visual processes in their image management strategies, particularly as they struggle against political opponents in an image-saturated world. Those image management strategies, ranging from propaganda to public diplomacy, also rely on images to produce legitimation of the self and delegitimation of others. Just think of the um, image that Bashar al-Assad has weaved for himself or tried to in Syria. So in this poster, you know, he's proclaiming that his people actually love him. In this one, which is the billboard for the um, children's hospital in Damascus, he's portraying himself attending to a sick child. This one is self-explanatory, pretending that he believes in Syria. And in this one, obviously, it claims the look of a lion. So, authoritarian states in the Middle East are particularly reliant on the image as a tool for the engineering of consent. And in a place like Syria today, images have become a way in which terror is diffused. In ultra-authoritarian states, terror is diffused through a simultaneous process of production and reception of images by the state. The citizen in this kind of society is always the object of the gaze 
of the state, whether physically through human and electronic surveillance of citizens by the state, or symbolically, the citizen as an object of the gaze of the watchful eye of the leader's image in public and even private space, or both a physical and symbolic object through being made to perform in pro-regime spectacles. Staged rallies are a way for despotic regimes to communicate power, approval, credibility, and obedience. And here I'd like to quote Lacoutre on the relationship between authoritarian regimes and citizens. He says, Big Brother is looking out for you. He never sleeps. He is always there. When he isn't making a speech or heading a parade, he is keeping an eye on you. Don't let him down. The media allow despotic regimes and rulers to extend their control over the symbolic world into a public diplomacy message. And this dynamic was particularly seen during the Arab Spring when state television in Syria was keen on broadcasting footage like this of huge pro-regime rallies that was directed both at the Syrians and at foreign powers. And ironically, it was Syrian President Bashar al-Assad who had once criticized the representation of anti-Syrian rallies in Lebanon during the Cedar Revolution in 2005, saying at the time that close camera angles made the demonstration sizes appear larger than they were. And the response by the Lebanese demonstrators at the time was to organize a huge rally in which they carried placards instructing the television cameras to zoom out. But all those attempts by the state, despite all those attempts, the images projected by the states in Syria, Libya, Iran, Tunisia, and other uh, authoritarian regimes in recent years, all these images have been subject to rejection and reversal by citizens who strive to reclaim a position of political agency. So the Arab Spring is an example of this process of gradual visual rejection and reversal leading to an explosion of the status quo. And we need to remember that Arab citizens had been engaging in acts of image reversal and subversion since well before the Arab Spring. In Egypt, Kifaya, which means enough in Arabic and also known as the Egyptian Movement for Change, was a grassroots movement born in December 2004 in protest against hereditary succession of the Egyptian presidency. From the very beginning, Kifaya was a visually aware movement, relying in its street protests on branded stickers, balloons, and other visual products, all of which had a distinctive yellow background with a logo, the word Kifaya, written in red in a modern Arabic font. This image is from Kifaya's first organized anti-Mubarak demonstration in central Cairo on December 12, 2004, where, as you can see, protesters covered their mouths with the Kifaya stickers. Kifaya thus planted the seed of citizens reclaiming their visibility in national space. Kifaya's use of public displays was coupled with the use of photographs 
as a tool of resistance. So during a demonstration against the constitutional referendum that would allow Mubarak to run for elections on 25 May 2005, Kifaya protesters were attacked by thugs and the riot police. They responded by starting to photograph the police with their mobile phone cameras and later made demonstration banners featuring those police photos. So utilizing visual evidence triggered a wider phenomenon of images documenting regime brutality and later things like election fraud. Those efforts in Egypt were strengthened with the establishment of a blog called Misr Digital by Wael Abbas in March 2005, which became an online newspaper chronicling Kifaya's activities and the state's response to it. Abbas's pioneering site was notable for helping break the taboo of speaking against regime brutality. His posting of pictures of people who had been attacked by the police encouraged other torture victims to start taking photos and videos of their injuries with their mobile phones and posting them on the internet. In January 2007, he started uploading mobile phone videos taken by the police as they tortured citizens, the image as visual evidence. So Muslim Digital catalyzed the rise of self-reporting and political blogging in Egypt. But this use of the image was not limited to secular communities. The use of blogs and arresting images by Kifaya and secular um, activists influenced the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt to use the same techniques. So the Brotherhood, for example, relied on dramatic visual displays in public action, such as this protest I witnessed during the Cairo conference in 2008, where Muslim Brotherhood students protested against the trial of their professors in military courts, posing, as you can see, with their hands tied and their mouths covered with tape. Images also became tools of mobilization. The death of 26-year-old Khaled Saeed in, in June 2010 at the hands of the Egyptian police was the epitome of the development of the image into a resistance tool. You might know the story. Saeed had posted on YouTube a piece of visual evidence, a video of Egyptian policemen profiteering from drugs. And his death as a result of subsequent torture at the hands of the police catalyzed outrage among Egypt's youth. A Facebook group called We Are All Khaled Saeed was set up, and on that blog or Facebook group, before and after photographs of Saeed's face were posted as evidence of police brutality. And the same images, as you can see, were carried by demonstrators who took to the streets to protest his death, turning Khalid Saeed into an icon of the disenfranchised individual among Egyptian youth. But bloggers, Kifaya, and Muslim Brotherhood activists were not the only creators of oppositional images in Egypt. Joining them were artists who constituted what Asif Bayat calls passive networks of imagined solidarities. As those artists did not always deliberately engage in collective action, but they formed a spontaneous network of resistant visual practices. So whether collectively or individually, they did take part in practicing visual political critique. And an example um, is the work of Mahamat Moon, a contemporary artist based in Cairo. 
In 2005, she created a photographic project called Domestic Tourism. And this image from the exhibition, we see sailboats on the Nile with the image of Mubarak embedded on their sails, which is a critique of the surveillance of national space in Egypt under the Mubarak regime. These visual oppositional acts, all of them, the bloggers, the artists, etc., formed what I call a revolutionary infrastructure that paved the way for the Arab Spring. The same visual practices that had been used to oppose the regime before the Arab Spring transformed into deliberate political tools during the Arab revolutions. But this was not a sudden jump. The way in which those visual tools was being used um, was becoming more and more efficient over the years. So citizens honed their skills and learned from prior experience how to become more effective, both on the political activism level as well as the visual expression level. For example, they learned that using one channel of communication alone, like the internet, is not enough. An example is the work of um, an activist in Egypt called Ahmed Sharif, who created videos that he would first disseminate on the internet, but, they, but were meant for distribution and circulation and exchange through Bluetooth, through mobile phones. So I'll show you an example of this, which is from 2007, singing happy birthday to Mubarak. سنة حلوة يا جميل سنة حلوة يا زعيم سنة حلوة يا مزور يا جبان يا فاشل يا قاتل سنة حلوة يا حرامي سنة حلوة يا جميل سنة حلوة يا زعيم Another thing activists learned is that online activism, as I said, is, is not enough and even mobile phone, you know, circulation of images is not enough. For activism to be really effective, it has to be done offline, it has to be done on the street, and it has to reach a wide section of the population, mainly beyond your own immediate group. And that's one important lesson that Egyptian activists learned over, over the years. So, in short, Arab activists learned to innovate, okay? All those years before the Arab Spring. Meanwhile, Arab leaders, often, like in the case of Qaddafi, continued to present the same image. Now, Qaddafi is unique because in this particular case, this image you're looking at was exactly the same image that Qaddafi would wheel out in public year on year to celebrate the anniversary of the revolution that brought him to power. Exactly the same image would be brought out every year and the number would change, celebrating the 36th anniversary, 37th anniversary, 38th anniversary of the Al-Fatih revolution. Now, other Arab leaders were more innovative than Qaddafi and embraced new communication technologies, like the case of Mubarak, who tried to kind of change his image, especially 
in 2005 when he ran for election and hired a PR company to kind of polish his image and bring him to the 21st century. So this is an image of Mubarak before. It's kind of, you know, rather low-key. And this is another one as we start edging towards the 2005 election. This is one of the images from the um, campaign, and you'll see the addition of sunglasses to kind of present Mubarak as this, you know, supposedly modern president. This is another photoshopped image, again, of um, Mubarak trying to look a bit younger with sunglasses. This is Mubarak trying to look casual without a jacket. Um, again, from the same um, campaign, trying to appeal to the youth. This is Mubarak the mafioso um, outside the building of um, Al-Ahram newspaper, kind of, you know, looming and imposing. This is Mubarak um, wearing his people as a skirt um, to show you how popular he is. And this is my favorite, Mubarak the movie star. Um, but even if leaders became more visually aware, they remained politically fossilized. So if we were to create a crude graph comparing citizens and leaders in terms of their visual and political evolution, it would look something like this. Now, this is not a scientific graph. This is just a joke. Just to show you that the leaders may have progressed in terms of visual expression, but they remain static in terms of political behavior, whereas over the years, the citizens' visual expression as well as political behavior kept <coughs> innovating and evolving. So the Arab Spring was a visually saturated era in which images were part of a domino effect as revolutions traveled from one country to another adopting similar visual techniques, as you can see. So saying this, the Arab Spring demands acknowledging the image as alive. Images are not just created objects. They are also beings whose physicality and presence capture and activate the viewer. So in this, the images of the Arab Spring are an articulation of what Horst Bredekamp calls build act, the picture act. The picture act is a way of understanding the power of the image. This power does not derive from the meaning that an image imposes, because after all, all images have multiple meanings for the beholders. The power of the image derives from the act of being seen. Bredekamp argues that once an image has been seen, it captures the viewer, making it impossible for the viewer to, and I quote, see the world in any way other than through this medium. It becomes impossible for the beholder to return to the status quo before the image was seen. I argue that the image of a Ben Ali free Tunisia could be said to be an example of Bildakt and to have catalyzed the Arab Spring, meaning in other countries. Photos and videos of jubilant Tunisians celebrating their revolutionary achievement changed the status quo in the Arab world as those images became empowering agents and a catalyst for other Arabs to rise against their tyrants. And images of the Tunisians protesting and how they behaved during those protests became a template for revolutionary public action, 
in this particular um, image, you see the placing of a rose, um, you know, in the rifle of a member of the army. Now, of course, one could argue that the mere news of hearing about the success of the Tunisian revolution could have itself just acted as a catalyst for other Arabs. But I argue that the role of the image was to bring other Arab citizens closer to this experience. The presence of images documenting revolution in a neighboring country made the concept of revolution less remote. And people across the Arab world could visualize themselves in place of the Tunisians as they watch the events develop on their screens in real time. So the images from Tunisia helped cultivate a sense of efficacy among Arabs, acting as a visual signal of empowerment. But media images were only one kind of image in the visual sphere of the Arab Spring. They were joined by physical images of bodies and places, in other words, physical presence. Asif Bayat argues that the art of presence is about the, and I quote, active use of public space by subjects who are normally allowed to use it only passively in ways that the state dictates. So being present in public space in an active way is a visual political act. So being active alerts us to the presence of intentionality in the act of creating the visual, the inherent acknowledgement by the people of the potential power of the image. So images in the Arab Spring acted as political weapons. People carried placards and recorded videos on their mobile phones to declare political demands, and their presence in public space was itself a visual political act. Images during the Arab Spring were also used as tactics. And an interesting example is the Egyptian Revolution, which witnessed a manual that advised people on how to protest, and this manual was distributed both online and offline, making the Egyptian Revolution the first in recorded history that came with a manual. The manual was titled, How to Protest Intelligently, and it contained tactical advice on how to act during the revolution. So for example, the manual listed the necessary attire for protesters with drawings. So in this page, for example, you'll see that it tells the potential protesters to get a hooded sweater, protective eyeglasses, rubber gloves, and a scarf, all to protect from tear gas. A pot cover to be used as a shield against rubber bullets, spray paint to spray on the visors of police helmets, and tennis shoes to run away, but also, interestingly, a rose to indicate peacefulness. The written instructions on page 14 with this image said, and as you can see in this image, there's a row of people standing carrying flowers. The, the instructions said, and I quote, group tactics. After Friday prayers, go out to the streets in organized rows carrying roses and flowers without chants or slogans. Walk in organized lines as if in prayer and continue till we reach our targets, end of quote. So we can see that the manual indicated a high awareness of the visual message sent by the style of the protests and the power of symbolism. 
The second tactical role that the visual played was part of the process of political and visual evolution that had been building up prior to the Arab Spring. And this is highlighted by the April 6 movement as its members sought to gather large numbers of people in the street. Ahmed Salah, one of the founders of the April 6 movement, and not to be confused with Ahmed Saleh, who is another April 6 member. So Ahmed Salah explained that before the planned demonstration on January 25, April 6 members went door to door in Cairo to survey people to find out what would actually encourage them to take part in a demonstration. And the answer that was given by most of those surveyed was, I would go if everybody was going. And so Salah came up with a strategy to achieve this. On January 25, he and his fellow activists organized many protests in narrow alleys in Cairo, thereby creating the illusion that everybody was going. And these alley protests encouraged those in neighborhoods to join in, after which the protesters all headed to Tahrir Square. So in this sense, the spectacle itself became a mobilization tool. Now, the Arab Spring also produced new images. The Egyptian Revolution, in particular, is noted for triggering a new visual field in Egypt and then in Libya, which is street art. The creation of images in public space as a way of claiming political power and marking territory is an established mechanism. Just think of Palestine for a vivid illustration. But in Egypt and Libya, under the previous regimes, the authority to create an oppositional image in public space, including to freely perform this role through the body, through the act of painting, was denied to the citizen. So the appearance of murals in Egypt and Libya after the revolutions is a way to let the body and the art make a statement about public visibility. Through street art, the previously disenfranchised are waging a war of presence. Now, I'm not going to focus on the representations within those murals and graffiti, but I want to highlight an innovative dimension in their use. And to illustrate, I'm going to present to you the case of an activist called Amr Bahiri. And this case also illustrates my argument uh, on why it is no longer enough to analyze images by genre. This is Amr Bahiri, who's an activist who was thrown in military jail because he participated in the revolution. After his arrest, Someone created an online banner that obviously referenced a mural, and this banner was circulated online calling for freedom for Amr Bihayri. Then the same image was transformed into a placard that people carried on the street when they demonstrated also asking for freedom for Amr Bihayri. And the same image was painted by a graffiti artist as a stencil on the walls in Cairo, again, demanding freedom for Amr Bihayri. Now, there's an artist in Cairo known as Sad Panda. He's a graffiti artist, and what he does is add the image of a sad panda to existing graffiti in Cairo. So in the case of the Amr Bihayri stencil, what Sad Panda did was add his sad panda to the left, staring directly at the image of Bihari. 
Why is this important? The latency of the panda's appearance, because it happened after, lends the original stencil an added layer of time. So on its own, you can say the original stencil could be seen as frozen in time. But with the appearance of the panda later, a sense of elapsed time is conveyed, implicitly highlighting an ongoing transgression on freedom. So in this way, graffiti and murals quickly evolved from simple comments on and commemorations of the revolution to political weapons inciting people to act. This war of presence has also led to another visual process in Egypt and Libya, which is the creation of exhibitions and museums commemorating the uprisings. In Libya, there are several exhibitions, mainly in Musrata, uh, including one of looted Qaddafi clothes. And this process of mu museumification, if we can call it that, can be related to two factors. First, museums are a sign of agency for citizens because choosing what to include is a sign of reclaiming power in the public realm. And in the case of displaying Qaddafi's clothes, this is also a sign of reversal of power relations between Qaddafi and his people. Second, as Levi Strauss argues, cultures without museums, I quote, feel the threat of a complete loss of historical memory. End of quote. So the image is a way for citizens to reclaim national memory from the authoritarian state. And these image dynamics of the Arab Spring traveled into other Arab countries one by one, establishing a kind of visual template for revolutionary action. Videos documenting regime brutality as well as citizen defiance have now become standard visual outputs of uprisings across the Arab world. Protest performances, like holding regular demonstrations on Fridays after prayers, also became rituals. And in Syria, the killing of 13-year-old Hamza al-Khatib gave the Syrian um, uprising its own symbolic martyr, joining Khaled Saeed of Egypt and Mohammed Bouazizi of Tunisia. This role of the image as an activator goes against the typical characterization of looking as substituting doing. On the contrary, the traveling image of the revolution was a narrative that operated as a framework fostering collective action. But the Syrian uprising differs from the rest of the uprisings in the Arab Spring through adding a new role for the image as a political tool. A significant movement engaging in nonviolent resistance spread across Syria in the early days of the revolution and even later, even in places witnessing military crackdown by the regime. In those places, citizens took to the street to engage in what can only be characterized as visual acts of the absurd as a means of resistance. So in this protest in Idlib in 2011, we saw citizens simply taping their mouths while carrying blank placards. And last year in Homs, young men launched small fireworks and aubergines in the direction of the Syrian army, which duly retaliated with live fire while the video protesters um, recorded the exchange on video, and I'm going to show you that now.
هذه العاب الناريه مشان ما يقولوا انه قنابل استوردناها من ايران ما عنا وهذا الطفل المدلل اللي عنا اخونا حمزه وهي الخشبه اللي بدنا نثبتها عشان ما ينصاب طاب ولا واحد منا ونبعتها على كل القنوات انه ما في عنا ولا مندس ولا متسلح ولا غير متسلح هذا سلاحنا ارجونا البيتنجان وينها؟ قنبلة هيك قنبلة البيتنجان بفجرهم كلهم فيها هاي البيتنجان بس كل منا مشان ما يقولوا هاي قنابل نظامية مشان شريف الشحادي بالضبط مشان ما يقول شريف الشحادي وبتسام عبد الله انها قنابل الله اكبر شباب جورة العرايس في منطقة حمص We have to remember that these methods of resistance through the absurd pushed non-violent protests to the fore, to literally stand in the face of state violence, and that these acts did not take place online. They took place on the front line and in the midst of ongoing assault by the regime. The noise we heard was mostly live fire by the Syrian army, not the sound of the fireworks. These acts exposed the human body in all its vulnerability and in doing so transcended this vulnerability. So although the Syrian uprising did eventually transform into an armed struggle against the regime, putting the bare human body on the front line sent a powerful message against the state's dehumanization of its citizens. It was the ultimate expression of the breakdown of the wall of fear. By engaging in these visual acts of the absurd as a means of resistance, Syrians challenged the regime narrative that was trying to render them silent and invisible. And we should not forget that this narrative denied the existence of an uprising in the first place, insisting that the protesters were armed criminal gangs. So to conclude, what are the lessons that can be learned from looking at the Arab Spring? Five lessons. The first lesson is that there is a need for a change in the way politics in the Arab world is perceived. Protest is where hard and soft politics meet, and images are one way in which this conjuncture is articulated. The image is one of the processes by which struggles over power occur in everyday life. 
paying attention to the image then is a way of acknowledging the importance of the diffused politics of the everyday. As the revolutions demonstrated, this informal, subversive politics has a real potential to translate into formal political change. Second, protests as visual performances necessitate acknowledging a change in the way politics is practiced in the Arab world. Politics is now an intentionally visual act performed on a global public stage where political agents are acutely aware of the resonance of the image projected by this performance. Third, the Arab Spring has effected a change in the way the Arab world itself is perceived. Mass protests by Arab citizens erase the perception of the Arab world as politically dormant. And this new perception of the Arab world as a politically active space is not just held by those outside the region, but also by Arab citizens themselves who now see their region differently. Fourth, the uprising signaled the end of the era of leader personification. Unlike the revolutions of Gamal Abdel Nasser, Qaddafi, Hafiz al-Assad, and Saddam Hussein, the Arab Spring revolutions were not led by a single man. They were people's revolutions in which the image of the singular leader was erased to be replaced with the image of the multitude. And this leads to the final lesson, which is that the Arab Spring is about a change in the way Arab citizens perceive themselves. They are no longer subjected. In particular, the Arab Spring is witness to the rise of the individual as an empowered political agent. So the power equation has changed. I'm going to finish by quoting Mark Crispin Miller, who in this quote is actually talking about something else, but I feel his words capture this new role for the citizen in relation to leaders, especially what we are witnessing in Egypt today. He says, there is no big brother out there watching you. Not because there isn't a big brother, but because big brother is you watching. Thank you. <laughs>